Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from Tiriciar in Sydney on Gadigal lands, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Anthony Dockrell. At the time of recording, there's only about 48 hours to go until the ballot boxes close and the counting commences on the voice referendum. It has been in many ways a bruising and tough campaign and one where many people have lamented the quality and tone of of that debate. It's also fair to say that the media at times has played a controversial role in the debate around the referendum. So it seems timely for us to ask, have we just witnessed a change in the way we conduct political discussion in this country? To help us, we are joined by two journalists who have been writing about the machinations of the referendum and beyond. Paul Karp is Guardian Australia's Chief Political Correspondent, and Charlie Lewis is Crikey's Tips and Murmurs Editor. Paul Karp and Charlie Lewis, welcome to Fourth Estate. Thanks for having us. So there's about 48 hours until the ballot boxes close on the voice referendum. Have either of you found the last two months edifying? No, I think it's been an incredibly dispiriting time because the the debate is not being conducted in in civil terms. There's a determination to try and drive Australians apart to portray the voice as a huge threat to say it's going to divide Australians when it's actually the the, the terms of the debate itself uh, th- that are doing that. And you know, I don't think that people, are being given the right information to uh, make a good faith assessment about whether or not this would, you know, enhance the system of governance and 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 close the gap and 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 recognise First Nations people. I think they're being given a, a series of jumped up scares or, or having things that aren't rationally connected to the question put in front of them, and like being asked to, you know, cast a vote against against government and based on distrust rather than thinking about the people that the voice is is intended to help. Charlie, what's your take on the last two months? Yeah, no, I think I think Paul and I would be on a on a bit of a unity ticket here. It's it's been a it's been a very dispiriting time. And I think kind of what 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 Paul slightly hints at there is that I think that the phrase good faith is a very important one in this kind of debate and there's been a, a distinct lack of it. And I think one thing that's sort of really been apparent to me from quite early on in the process is that as soon as it was decided by by opposition leader Peter Dutton and, and others that this was going to be a partisan issue as much as a policy one, they basically, the no campaign more or less had the cheat codes, I suppose, to this public debate. You can you you sort of know they they could they knew they could say anything and more or less it would be dutifully reported by the media as though it were a contested claim rather than the the, the example that I always think of is Karen White, the, the former One Nation candidate who was who who was reported saying on a on a podcast that a successful referendum would would result in Australia, white Australians having to to pay to remain on their lands, something that is demonstrably untrue. That was the headline, and it was debunked in the piece. But but th- the way that people, I suppose, consume media now, there's a very big risk, I think, of putting that kind of stuff in the headlines. And I feel like that's sort of filtered throughout the whole debate. We saw another awful example on Thursday. Peter Dutton 
falsely claimed that Anthony Albanese never mentioned the voice before the election, which is just mm. patently untrue. There's you know the, dozens and dozens of times in his campaign launch, in a policy document before the election, the closing the gap statement. You know they they recommitted to Uluru. You know every year since it happened, you know, pretty much. And and that wasn't you know good enough to to be on his radar. He's saying basically Anthony Albanese didn't have a have a mandate, and it's a sort of yeah. Peter Dutton uh, and the uh, the coalition by opposing it create the division, and then blame and then blame the prime minister as if the, as if it's inherent in the proposal that this was going to you know tear Australia apart, and and the the audacity of having even put it to a vote, even though. That's what the Uluru statement asks for, and and it, until very recently, it was bipartisan that there should be a referendum. Democracy, by its very nature, is messy, but this referendum does feel, in many ways, to be like our Brexit, our Trump moment. Is that how it feels to the both of you, Charlie? Yeah, totally. I mean, you know, obviously, with with all these sorts of uh, issues, there's there's an element that you know you don't want you don't want to draw too many connections between situations that are that are kind of different i mean so there are there are parallels for sure and I, but i mean I, in terms of our standing in the world and things like that as opposed to the effects of something like brexit or the election of donald trump i i genuinely don't know whether that will end up being the same there is a sense that um having resisted it for quite a long time and having had um sort of attempts to disconnect the debate from from observable reality Kind of resisted. Say, for example, the 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 the, the unsuccessful claim attempts of, say, Clive Palmer in the last election to get several people elected with, with some blanket advertising. There is a sense that that certain certain things that we thought we might not see in Australia that we'd seen in other jurisdictions have started happening. The, the most obvious one, and I don't want this to become just a an hour of us slating Peter Dutton because it is a wider issue than this. But he he is a very good person to look at for this sort of thing. When he came out and sort of implied that the voting system might be rigged because of the the Australian Electoral Commission's long-stated policy of accepting ticks as yeses but not accepting crosses as noes, that I think is a threshold moment in some ways. When, when you start getting leaders of mainstream parties attacking the very institutions that kind of underpin democracy, then you really are sort of, you're in new territory to a certain extent. Now, Charlie, you wrote today in the crikey that the media has played a major role in the lies and distortions that have taken place in this campaign what did you find well i so the the the, the lens through which i looked at it basically was I, I, I noticing that even quite good reporting and quite what appeared to be quite good faith reporting was being distorted in the way that it was being presented so there was a, so i basically i looked at the debate through what i call five misleading headlines and I, and i i i should make clear at this stage that in in some cases i'm not actually having a go at the journalists themselves one individual journalists very rarely come up with their own headlines and to the extent that they do um the reporting was still quite good in my, in, in in some of the cases of the pieces but essentially i mean the, the, this is something i've written about before the, the the biggest i think and most obvious distortion was the Reporting of, of comments that Professor Marshall Langton, a, a prominent Yes campaigner, had made in Bunbury back at the beginning of September. She essentially said that if you break down the arguments behind a lot of the no campaigns talking points, you find essentially racism or stupidity. I'm sorry, but that's where it lands. That was then written out by the local paper, the Bunbury Herald, as 
under the headline racist or just stupid. And and the way that her comments were summarized was that she said that no voters were backing racism and stupidity. It was then picked up the next day by the Australian, which basically put it in the same terms. No voters, racist or stupid. Langton kind of was how it was put. They eventually backed down on that and, and changed the headline after a bit of backlash because it was such an obvious misrepresentation. But by that stage, Peter Dutton had turned it into a Facebook post where, where using the same headline and attaching that to Marshall Langton and then beyond that to, to Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, basically saying he has to come out and condemn these, these terrible remarks, remarks that had never actually been made. For all the coverage that got, that, that post is still up. That post never got taken down. And I don't think we can expect that it will now. I've got a few examples of the the role of the media. I mean, first of all, there's there's outright tipping the scales in one direction. So if you look at the coverage of high court judges raising constitutional concerns or being in favour of the voice in a conservative national broadsheet newspaper, you'll find the concerns of Callanan, a very conservative judge, given a lot of prominence and even though, you know, vastly outnumbered by, by you know, Chief Justice French and many others, you know, that they, that they report that as if it's a, an, even, an even argument. The public broadcaster, you know, basically feels that they have to platform opponents of the voice, which is is fair enough if they're making arguments that are that are rationally connected to the question. But like a, a lot of the time, it's people who want to talk about other issues. So, for example, the the progressive no side often isn't really even arguing about the voice. They're just saying we should be doing something instead, as if as if the voice is somehow mutually exclusive with treaty and truth, when in fact, you know, the Uluru Statement contains uh, all three and, you know, Labor and the Greens are committed to all three. Uh, another example is the way live coverage um, can give people the wrong impression. So, Peter Dutton says that he would have another uh, referendum for constitutional recognition without a voice. But if you if you see that as he says it out of his mouth without reading a fuller story with all the context, you 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 might if you knew the full context, you might you know think it's vanishingly unlikely that Peter Dutton would actually have a second referendum and that that other option is not really ever going to materialize. So those those are some of the ways that I think the, the media have failed readers and audiences. Now Paul you you wrote on Twitter a few days back that the yes campaign needed clear air all this week if it had any chance of making up lost ground. Has the attacks in Israel basically taken away that chance? First of all, it, it's absolutely horrific uh, what has happened in Israel, and that's a hugely consequential story. And we're obviously, you know, doing our, our job by reporting, you know, the, it, it, every detail of that. But one, you know, one thing being very focused on Australian politics, as I am, that occurred to me after that was that, you know, in the second last week, there were flickers that were good for the yes side, the essential poll. Morgan resolve. They showed the slightest start of an uptick for yes. And when the Hamas attack happened, I was just like, well, there's, there's page one of every newspaper gone for, for the remaining, you know, seven days between now and the referendum. So, you know, good luck getting to those undecided uh, voters and for those people that do need information at the last minute now to make up their mind. It just became that much harder. Now, Paul, you wrote yesterday that the opposition had used the attacks in Israel to beat the government over the head, and Labor have been clear with their messaging and their support for Israel. 
but that has not been enough. What do you read into this lack of bipartisanship at this time? Because it actually is, I think, quite an unusual stance that the opposition has taken. It shows that uh, extreme polarisation is their goal. Uh, It's not just a a side effect. It's what they're going to actively pursue to try and uh, win their way back into government. So, you know, Penny Wong was criticised for urging restraint uh, when it comes to protecting um, civilian life. Peter Dutton demanded that Albanese uh, denounce rallies. And then when he did denounce the rallies, Dutton continued to demand it as if that had never happened. So uh, another example today, uh, Dutton went on 2GB and and Ray Hadley suggested it was, you know, in the DNA of some Labor people to hate Israelis. And Dutton basically agreed by saying there is an element of that in in what's happened in the the public debate. So extreme bad faith, extremely personalised, vicious attacks in order to polarise and and to take advantage of of this tragedy. Now, this extreme polarisation that you, you mentioned, is that something that you've also seen in the voice referendum? I mean, I mean, is this a further demonstration of the extreme polarisation that this country is now going through? Yes, I, I think we've definitely seen it in the voice debate, but it's not, you know, it, it's sadly not a completely recent phenomenon. When you asked Charlie about the Australia's Brexit or Trump moment, I, I recall a column, I'm sorry, I can't remember who by, but a few years ago, arguing that Australia, in a way, had already had its Brexit and Trump moment in the election of, of Tony Abbott on a, on a policy of tearing up the carbon tax. And, and the, the climate wars, as they were referred to, was an example of this sort of extreme positions being taken and, and can't even agree on the underlying facts, let alone the, you know, what, what policy we should adopt to counter them. So, I, I think it's I think there is an extent to which this has been part of politics for a while. Charlie, have you noticed uh, any shift recently? Well, yeah. I mean, as I, said, I think I think uh, Paul makes a very point, and 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 that the the targeting of polarization and the the opposition for the sake of it as an approach to politics is something certainly that that Abbott really perfected, and 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 the use of quite provocative language around climate or gender or, or asylum seekers was was obviously part of, of that. As I, as I say, I think I do think that I, I, I may be remembering this wrong, but I, I, I don't think I remember Tony Abbott ever claiming that, say, a voting process was was rigged. I do feel that that, that was maybe a, a step further in a certain direction. And again, I think that one is something that is distinctly post-Trump, because obviously that's such a big part of now mainstream Republican thought, the idea that an, that an election process was was rigged against them, essentially. It was more fringe. Uh, Clive Palmer did used to raise the conspiracy theory about voting in pencil. So, but that wasn't more fringe. <laughs> yeah, right. that wasn't more fringe opinion rather than the the opposition leader who then became PM. Yeah. Now, look, it's, it, when Labor won the last federal election, which was two years ago, the tenor of the, the debate in the the country definitely changed. You could feel the pendulum swinging back to the centre. From the events of recent of recent times and the fact that you're talking about this hyperpolarization entering into our debates, are, are you seeing the pendulum swinging to the right? And do you see it staying there? Or do you think after this referendum has finished, it'll quickly dissipate? I think that the relentless negativity is a useful strategy for defeating a referendum because you turn people off and then you tell them, if you don't know, vote no, and they throw their hands up and they, they just reject it out of hand. But I don't think it's a, a good electoral strategy 
for Dutton in in his uh, attempt to win the next federal election. I mean, Albanese's approval has held up pretty well while Dutton has driven his lower and lower. We've seen a small recovery in the coalition's primary vote that's probably more attributable to people's cost of living concerns than it is to, you know, thinking that Dutton would be a good prime minister. So, you know, I, I, and, and Labor hold up pretty well in two-party preferred. So I don't think it's a, a very good electoral strategy. I don't think that Australia is in general shifting to the right, but you, you, you never know. He could first tip the Albanese government into minority and then there's more disagreement and division in a hung parliament and then use that to try and win at a second election. So I don't think we're necessarily heading more rightwards, but there, but it is it is a strategic thing that he's doing. I would I would definitely agree with that, Paul. And I would probably just add the other thing to sort of bear in mind is that the 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 huge reason why um why Labour is in well, one huge reason why Labour is currently in power is the Teal movement. And those seats are seats that the Liberal Party would need to get back to have any chance of forming government in its own right. And it's very hard to imagine the way things currently are, that those voters would be won back to a, a Liberal Party run by Peter Dutton, particularly Peter Dutton, the way that it's being run now. And that, look, that's a really interesting point. We should we should tease this one out a little bit more because Paul mentioned, you know, it's a, clearly a strategy, but it's not a strategy that will win back those teal seats. In fact, it's a way of basically saying that for the next foreseeable future, they'll remain teal. Why is Dutton playing such a short-term game? I think it's a two a two-election strategy. At the next election, Try and win a few a few seats back in WA and you know the the the, the, the not inner city suburbs, then then Labor will be somewhere in the low to mid seventies in in minority, and require the Greens and or the Independents for confidence and supply, and then at the next election after that, you go to the constituents in in you know Warringah, Wentworth. Goldstein, Kuyong, Curtin, all all these uh, formerly blue ribbon seats, and you say, look, your your teal uh, your teal MP um, uh, installed a Labor prime minister, and you know in the same way that Oakshot and Windsor's uh, uh, electors were very happy with the job they were doing as as an independent um, until they supported the Gillard government because they thought Julia Gillard would be a better PM, and then then they suddenly oh well. There are downsides in voting for an independent, and some of their more conservative constituents turned against them. I think that's what uh, Peter Dutton is hoping will happen in the teal seats. Charlie, also, I suppose that as you say, there is just some, there is a, there is a short termism as well about it, which is that it's just wrecking crew stuff. It's just inflict as much in damage upon the government of the day as you possibly can. Let's turn to Twitter because a lot of the debates and the tactics we're talking about have been taking place there. Charlie, Twitter has recently taken away the headline feature from media accounts. Can you explain what this means and how it's hurting traditional media organisations? Sure, yeah. I mean, this is part of, of a very, very long-running, I guess, process that's been going on at the, the site formerly known as Twitter, currently known as X, since it was taken over by, by tech billionaire Elon Musk. I mean, th- th- before they did this, they'd obviously they disbanded their, their trust and their safety teams. They'd reinstated a lot of like extremist and misinformation-based accounts. They'd removed labels in terms of that would in- indicate who users that the account was associated with, like, say, a foreign government, say, say China or, or Russia. They sort of would, they would ban people briefly for uh, making jokes that, 
Musk's expense, and 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 sort of as as it's no surprise to see then that there was a big spike in misinformation and and has harassment on on the site, and and also sort of very troubling racial kind of content. I mean, the, the other, the, 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 I think the big step was, or or at least one of the biggest steps was the taking away of the blue tick very verification process and replacing it essentially with a uh, a pay to play situation, which basically inverted the whole point of the process rather than looking at something and knowing that it came from a, a trusted and verifiable source it was coming through someone who was desperate enough for attention to to pay for that verification so the the most recent stop and it's something that again it's been on his radar for quite some time was to take away yes the the head headlines and context of news stories that were being posted to the site leaving just the just the the feature image and a sort of embossed website address on those images but it's, it's essentially just it, it, it once it adds to the sense of ill clarity the 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 lack of a sense of sturdy and trustworthy information and it makes it and and uh, the 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 understanding that i have is that the, the the process that was the the aim of this process was to make it less um likely that people would click away from twitter and, and sort of force news producers to to put more of their content directly onto the site but obviously it actually probably has the opposite effect people now don't know the context and often will will, will click through um so it's, it's all part of of quite a long-running strategy it also seems to remove the division between media organizations and just joe blog putting a post out there as well yeah absolutely yeah yeah it continues it continues that process and of course i mean and and we've obviously mentioned the 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 horror currently unfolding in israel and palestine and it's you know this is bad news in general when it comes to you know misinformation about say elections being stolen or 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 climate change or anything like that but when you really really need a site like twitter or, or x to to do its job to be really really trustworthy is when something is unfolding in real time that requires, you know, good, sturdy information for users. And that's always going to, that's always has been, and probably always would be something that bad faith actors would take advantage of. And there's always been misinformation proliferated, especially in the early days of, of conflict on, on sites such as Facebook and, and, and Twitter. But you've, you've seen that just absolutely accelerate in the, in the last week. Now, we don't need to read the tea leaves to work out what Elon Musk thinks of the media. And, you know, if, if Twitter is now a space for disinformation and abuse and traditional media's content is now placed on, on the same level as disinformation and lies, where is the upside for the media to be in this space? Well, it doesn't drive uh, a lot of traffic. Uh, I mean, we, we look at our statistics. So we know that Apple News and Google and, you know, even Dagia social media sites like Facebook drive more traffic than Twitter. It's less useful now for live news, you know, eyes and ears everywhere, people with their phones whacking up video and and photos because it's just you, you can't trust anything you see there anymore. So it, it, it is becoming a lot less useful. I think we've just got this sort of collective action problem that people haven't all shifted at the same time to, to an alternative. I mean, I think Blue Sky is getting some good organic growth, um, but, you know, you get a few invi- invite codes at a time, so not everyone can join at once. Threads had the opposite problem where everyone joined at once, but then they saw that it you know wasn't really very like Twitter at all. It was 
prioritizing people in the algorithm who had big Instagram followings who are not necessarily, you know, great writers or, or, or opinion leaders or, or you know, the, the sorts of people that experts or, or journalists or whatever that people sought out on Twitter. So, people abandoned it because it, it wasn't replicating the experience. So I, I think there might be a big change in behavior and another uh, another social media site will take over, but it might take a final push like if he, if Musk were silly enough to charge everyone for it because it's a bit of a bin fire at the moment. I think that would be the final push that people need to break up with it. Charlie, is there any upside and is it time to leave? Yeah, no, I, I, I was thinking this as I was sort of getting my notes ready to chat with you guys today. And I did think, why is anyone still there? And I suppose it, there's, there is an element of, as Paul says, it, it's, it does seem like it's slowly bleeding out and that people are more and more kind of moving away from it. And, and I think we have seen quite big upticks in the last week or two of, of more, more people shifting to threads. Although, as, as, as Paul says, it's not, it's not quite scratching the same itch for people. I suspect that the, the site will, will go on, but it will now probably come to reflect more of a truth social or or a telegram style thing where it's 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 just more of a kind of out and out cesspool that people kind of keep an eye on to see if anything interesting happens okay look a uh, final question uh, I, I don't know how we can tie all this together but look we've had a big wide-ranging chat about the voice about uh, about some tactics that are going on within the opposition and within sections of the media to to amplify and cause confusion out there if Australia votes no, and that is what the polls are telling us, what do you expect to flow from this result? Well, we're definitely not going to have an Indigenous voice in the Constitution. We're not going to have a legislated one either because the Prime Minister has said he's going to respect the result and that means not working around it by having a legislated voice. I don't think that the opposition, even if they were elected in two elections' time, is going to get round to their their claim that they would achieve constitutional recognition with a symbolic clause because I think that conservatives would just demand that they not do that and they would they would just backflip and not do it. And I, I, I really want I I don't think local and regional voices will happen for the same reason. So that like that that aim is going to be balked not to be too rude about it. So I think people are going to need to think of other ways to try and close the gap and think of other ways to try and bring together um, uh, Australians, not just on Indigenous affairs, but on all other issues. So I, I want to be hearing more about other other solutions and other things we can be doing to help people, things like an anti-racism framework, things like a Human Rights Act. We, we have to look for other ways to you know, bring some goodwill back and try and improve people's lives rather than creating difference in order to win votes if, if we're ever going to get anywhere on any of these difficult social issues. Yeah, I, I I really worry and about about what what's to come after after the vote. If it, if indeed, well, on, on either level, I think it's it's going to be a rough time, especially for, for first Australians. But I, I I do I do worry what the no vote is going to kind of unleash in some ways. I think there's the there's there's I think there's two sort of things that and then Paul has hinted at half of this is that what one I think that there's a very strong possibility that the Albanese government for quite some time after this will decide that any kind of major action on Indigenous affairs is too politically risky. It's too humiliating for them to keep trying to put these things forward and and to be slated on them. And they may move away from that area for a while. And I also worry about some of the slightly bad faith actors that we've been discussing 
in this time will be very empowered and they'll think about what they can try and target next. I mean, there's obviously been talk about more auditing and more more auditing of, of say, Indigenous money that is spent on Indigenous causes and by government. They may feel that they can get some wins in that area. On a separate point, there's obviously been talk that Senator Jitson to Price, another prominent no campaigner, is going to start looking at trans issues after this, which which again really does worry me in terms of what we're what our conversation is going to look like for the next couple of months after this. And that again is following the American playbook. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it would strike me too if there is a, a no vote come the weekend that none of us might actually see another referendum again. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Obviously, it's been it's been twenty five years since the last one, and it was it was a fairly decent gap between that one and the one before. Yeah, it would be it'd be hard. To, I mean, I think because obviously this again, why anyone would take a massive swing at this and look at all the 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 the, the trouble that it caused the Labour government to try and do this? What why you would attempt that anytime soon afterwards? I I, I can't really see much upside to it. Yeah, it seems plausible that a republic would be pushed off from a second uh, term Labor government to third term or beyond, and you wouldn't you wouldn't bother putting it up unless the opposition leader was was someone who you know is prepared to publicly say that they would support it rather than you know kick it to death. Yes, we'll look on that note, Paul Paul Carp and Charlie Lewis. Thanks for being on for for state, and thanks for a very illuminating discussion. Thanks so much, Anthony. Cheers. Thanks for having us. And thanks for listening to the program. This edition was recorded at the studios of TRCR and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Thanks to the Foundation for its continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk about the media, politics and a lot in between. We'll be back with more next week. But in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle is for State AU, and you can also find us on threads. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>